Hill family, if you weren't here when we began, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here. A few announcements. If you're a member, you saw that. Please be here tonight at 5 o'clock. Important meeting. All, all our members' meetings are important. We'll discuss some intimate, loving things as a family that we always do. Get some ministry updates. We're also in the continual, ongoing process about the construction we're doing on the front of our building. Hopefully, we'll have some updates on that. So please be here this evening at 5 o'clock. We'll pray together, sing together. It'll be a, a good time as the body. And then the more they cook out, it's coming up. I don't know. I don't make the rules of those things. I'm just the pastor here. Sometimes there is competition, cornhole, different things like that. I don't know. I just take the trophy home after them. That's all I do. So please come. You can try to steal it from me if you would like. But we'd love to see us there on Memorial Day to uh, fellowship with you. Hebrews chapter 13. We're in the last chapter of Hebrews. If you have a Bible, please, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to Find one in the seat back in front of you. Ask a neighbor if you need to. It's important you see the text and walk along through it with me as we go together. The call to preach God's Word week in, week out is no small thing. Um, wrestling with the text, um, it's a hard work, it's a labor, but it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's a, but it's a rewarding thing. I don't know if I could describe it as kind of a weighty, joy-filled privilege to speak and to study God's Word and to try to explain it to God's people on a weekly basis. But the difficulties of sermon prep are typically not trying to determine what the text says. Now, there are some difficult passages. We've dealt with some of those in Hebrews. And, but most weeks, uncovering what the text says is straightforward often. There's a grammar and you dig through it, but you... You kind of get to what the text says pretty quickly. That's not really the difficult part. The, the right and proper interpretation of the text of God's Word is the difficult work. And any preacher will tell you that. And faithful, faithful preaching requires, yes, exposing the truth of what the text says. That's the preacher's primary objective. But a, a sermon is not complete until you answer the so what. Question. Answer, how are you to call God's people to live in light of the truth that you've exposed, hopefully, in the text? And the preacher's confidence in the difficult work of application, in exhorting God's people to obedience, grows out of, comes out of, the faithfulness of the exposition of the text. If you know clearly what God's Word says, you can call people to respond in light of it with clarity and confidence. So faithful exposing of the truth of God's word regarding who Jesus is and what he has done in redemptive history is foundational for right application, right exhortation in the Christian life. And such faithful preaching has been modeled for us masterfully in the book of Hebrews. Remember when we began, we talked about the book of Hebrews being a sermon, or at least maybe a sermonic letter, a letter that was, came out of a, a long sermon. We have a preacher in front of us each week. So the author, the preacher... He's followed this pattern of what we call exposition, exposing what the text says, and then exhortation, calling the Christians to respond in light of it. And he's explained over and over again regarding the person and work of Jesus. But he didn't stop there. He then exhorted, and sometimes he forcefully exhorted us, gave us warnings and why we should obey the church to respond correctly in light of this truth. And really like any good preacher, as you bring your sermon to a conclusion, you 
kind of summarize your key points. And then you kind of set before the congregation some final application for the people to obey. And this is what we have in chapter 13. For 12 chapters, the author has been exposing the truth of the person and work of Jesus. 13 times the author has used this word better or superior to emphasize that Jesus is superior to anyone or anything that, came be- that, that, would, that could come before him as for his birth and would come after him. And as our merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus has made propitiations for our sin. Chapter 2, verse 17. And he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come through to him through faith. Since he always lives to make intercession for us. Chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is the author. He's the finisher. He's the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our faith. As our king priest, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament expectations. Enabling us and really inspiring us to run the race of faith with endurance and perseverance for for which he's the prime example of we look to. But now in chapter 13, with really clarity again and force and really brevity of language, the author tackles the so what question. How are we to live as God's people? How are we to live as the covenant community in response to what Jesus has accomplished? I want to read you a quote that I think is really helpful. New Testament scholar George Guthrie describes chapter 13 of Hebrews this way. He, says a, a, he calls it a strategically crafted final movement of this powerful sermon. He says it's a series of robust exhortations for living out the Christian faith in the details of our daily responsibilities. All right. So if I could summarize it this way, we're just kind of tackling or, or just building upon what we said last week. And really we'll do that next week as we close out the book. But I'll give it to you this way in one sentence. That this week we see that as God's people we are to remember the faith of our leaders and guard it by identifying with our Savior and offering continual praise to Him. As God's people we would remember the faith of our leaders. We're to guard it. Guard their faith that they modeled for us and taught us by identifying with our Savior and offering continual praise to Him. I'm going to read from verse 7 down to verse 16 and then next week we will handle 17 through the end of the chapter and then we will be finished with the book of Hebrews. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teaching. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which has not benefited those devoted to it. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Lord, we come again this morning to a very earthy passage. We have been to the mountaintop of theology in the book of Hebrews. But the author really brings us to a very earthy conclusion, reminding us of really how simple and how significant our faith is. We're to love one another, continue in it. That we're to be simple people that show hospitality. That we're to care for those who are forgotten. We're to honor marriage. We're to be content. And this morning we are to tack on to those some other, some more simple exhortations to us. So God, I pray you would help us to see Jesus in all of these. Help us to respond rightly to what he's done, what we have in him. And I hope we can see the simple but significant faith that we have as Christians. The life you call us to and the significance of what it means to be a new covenant believer. Help me be clear. Help our hearts to hear. Help our feet to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. In the last uh, chapter 13, 25 verses, right? In these 25 verses, um, of this really theological masterpiece known as the book of Hebrews, the author gives us no less than 12 imperatives or words of command describing how we as the people of God are to respond to the person and work of Jesus. That's significant, the way he ends. And I want to repeat, as I said last week, the Christian life does require and demand a certain way of living. That is absolutely true. However, it's also true that this way of life we are called to comes as a response to what God has already done for us in Christ. So we don't do these things in order to gain Christ. Obedience to this string of commands, to these 12 imperatives here, is not what makes us Christians. It's what demonstrates that we are Christians. It's what demonstrates that we are Christians and that we, how we express our, our faith together as the community of believers in the New Covenant. Now, so this morning we are building upon last week. In light of the person and work of Jesus, we must, as we, we saw, endure in love, welcome the stranger, care for the forgotten, honor marriage, remain content. And now, the first one, remember faithful leaders in verses 7 through 8. So it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Leader here is clearly in reference to leadership in the church. Or as he qualifies it, those who spoke the word of God to them. But it's important we also notice how this is in the past tense. So the church is called to remember those who spoke previously the word of God to them. And this response to leadership is different than what we'll address next week down in verse 17, if you look down at it. See what it says there in terms of their current leadership. There, the the author calls them to submit to their leaders. Here, he says, remember those leaders. So given these distinctions, 
Most understand this reference in verse 7 to be addressing former leadership in the church, maybe who have deceased by this time. So where they are called to obey and submit to current leadership, here they are called to remember those from the past. And notice the basis of this remembrance. And really, as we can see, the, the definition of right leadership here comes from what? Speaking the word of God. We must remember, it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. So the, the word of God is clearly the word of Christ, as this letter has masterfully laid out. It's the content of Jesus. It's the word of the gospel. And this speaking probably is in reference to, yes, those hearing the gospel for the first time, responding by faith. But the speaking of the word that gave rise to this very church here that was started. And because they spoke the word, a level of authority and even honor is to be assigned to them. This is a reminder that leadership in the church is word-based leadership. Authority in the church is derived from the word. While we'll discuss this uh, in more detail next week, authority is assigned to leadership in the church in accordance to how they, the manner in which they speak, thus saith the Lord. And likewise, their honor, their remembrance is to be understood in accordance to how the Word of God guided their ministry and personal lives. So this call to remembrance is not some sort of like sentimental kind of reminiscence of times of the old. No, they are to remember these leaders in two specific ways. Consider the outcome of their way of life, number one, and second, imitate their faith. Outcome speaks to more than just how their life ended. It speaks to the conclusion or the summary or the total impact of their life that their life had. So this is really the ultimate statement of honor. It's saying, consider the totality of their life. Test their lives and see if their faith proved sound. It's saying, if you want to persevere to the end, take a close look at, at their lives. But it's saying... We do more than just glance back at their lives, right? Or just look at their lives. It's consider their lives that we might, what? Do likewise, imitate their faith. This is why Paul could say to Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. And this is why Paul instructed Timothy, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And then he said, until I come, what? Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, Timothy... Uh, the As a leader, Timothy was to speak forth the word of God to the people of God. And Timothy was to allow the word to shape his life so that it might be seen publicly. That he might be a public example to the people. Paul tells him, let your progress, Paul says, be evident among them all. That's the call of leadership in the church. It's a type of leadership we are to remember. It's a beautiful thing in our replanting situation it's that we have a former leader who modeled this so well who still attends our church who's still part of our church even today pastor sam and joyce and i know this is probably since they're not here this sunday and we're talking about deceased leaders i'm not trying to tell you they went to glory okay i'm not telling you that they're on a vacation trip on a trip for the week But we have that beautiful reality. We can look to Pastor Sam and Joyce's life and we can see the outcome of their life is that Jesus was at the center. And that he was a man who was committed to preach the word. I remember visiting here. I remember coming in the first couple months here and Sam had back issues and things that was going on. And I remember watching Sam take off from that first step, that first couple seat and walk to this 
this, this arm, this step here, and grab the handrail and literally clutch that handrail and pull himself to get to this pulpit to preach the word to the people. It was, it's a model, it was an example that I saw. Be devoted to speaking forth the word of God to God's people. He's a faithful example to us that we see. And while this, this call, though, to, uh, is, is really too specifically to leadership, it, and to, I think past leadership in general, we'll, we'll deal with what it looks like for leadership currently in verse 17. This, this call here also reminds us, I think, of the central role of discipleship in the life of the body. At the, and at the heart of discipleship is word-based instruction and teaching, no doubt. Like there's a lot of conversation about discipling, and we can read a lot of that. At the center of it is exhorting people to hear and to follow Jesus through the Word. But it's teaching and instruction that produces fruit, public fruit, fruit that's visible. It's teaching and instruction which provides living examples for people to emulate within the body. So if we smash that text, that application down to us, we could ask two questions of each of us in this, in this room. Who are you watching? And who is watching you? Who are you watching? I encourage you, yes, watch those who are older than you and still living and that are examples to model, but you, you need to watch some dead guys from history and ladies from history. Read some good biographies of missionaries who've served well. It will bring so much perspective to your life and your situation. When you feel like all is going wrong, go read of our sisters and our brothers from the past who endured, who persevered. See their faith and imitate it. Be thankful for that. And then be reminded that people are watching you. Think through who is watching you. What are they seeing and how can they imitate you in that way? Now verse 8 here, at first read, it, it, it somewhat seems that it just comes out of nowhere. It's like, it's like the author here got really excited about just slipping in a systematic theology bomb here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. first glance, it kind of seems out of place. But the author is actually grounding the significance of what he just said. We are to remember previous leaders who spoke the word of God to us because the Christ that they served, the Christ that they worship, the Christ that resulted in their perseverance is the same Christ. Yesterday, today, and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, our, our God does not change. And the persevering power of the gospel never wanes. Faithful leadership is to display this. The same Jesus that was available to the leaders yesterday, he's talking here, is the same Jesus that's available to us today. And the same, this word, this word same, is really the emphasis of the author here. It's right at the center of this little statement. The perpetual effectiveness of Jesus is what the author is pointing to. Though times and seasons may change, our Jesus does not. We all need to soak that in for a moment. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. In terms of us personally and our walk with Jesus, and in terms of what He's doing redemptively in the world, 
For the same Jesus who offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, verse, chapter 5, verse 7, is the same Jesus who sympathized with us in our weakness, chapter 4, verse 5. And he's the same Jesus who forever lives to make intercession for us, chapter 7, verse 25. And in our world today, where the only thing that really we can count on is that things will continuously change, we must remain fixed upon our unshakable Savior. But we do have to be biblical here. We do have to, be remember, we have to remember what Jesus' sameness is committed to. Jesus is not committed to making any nation great or sustaining any nation's power. He is committed to the advancement of His glory among all nations and all peoples. He's not committed to the advancement of our 401k. He's not committed to the advancement of our nest egg and our security. He's committed to, the, to, to that the gates of hell will not overcome the church of Jesus Christ. No matter what changes around us, we must remember the unchanging one, Jesus. We must remember that what He, what he has committed Himself to, that we must rest in the truth that He's the same yesterday. He's the same right now in this moment. And Jesus will forever be the same Jesus. And we must remember those who by faith in the unchanging Savior modeled for us what perseverance looks like in the ever-changing world. Faithful leadership is to display the consistency, the constancy of Jesus in, in their lives. After years of leading and laboring with so many things changing, the conclusion of faithful leadership should be that Jesus his perpetual effectiveness was evident in their life. Jesus stayed the same in their life. They persevered in Him. And we must imitate their faith to persevere as well. Secondly, we have to stay true to the gospel of grace in verses 9 to 10. Verse 9, the author gives us a negative command, but it comes with just as much force. We are to remember our leaders and consider their lives... But we're also not to be led away by false teaching. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which has not benefited those devoted to it. So like a, a piece of maybe wood being carried away upon a raging waters. That's the image the author presents here for us. Of not being carried away by strange and alien teachings. And given the context of Hebrews and the description that follows regarding we're going to talk about food, he's going to talk about an altar, he's going to talk about a tent. This alien teaching, this strained teaching, this foreign teaching is related to the contrast between the Old and the New Covenant. And yet while that's true, this teaching, false teaching described here is contemporary. Verse 10 makes this clear. We have an altar from which those, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So the author is not... Once you hear this, he's not looking back to what was previously done in the Old Covenant and now calling it strange and foreign. That's not what he's doing. No, his concern is with current false teaching regarding the things of the Old Covenant that are now threatening this church and the message of the New Covenant, or as he's going to get right to, this message of the gospel of grace. So how did the, see how the author says this. Do not be led away by strange, by diverse and strange teaching, for it, for it is good. It is good 
for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So the opposite of being led away by strange teaching is that our hearts be strengthened, or maybe your translation has confirmed by grace. So we should, we, we should be used to the author's uh, kind of emphasis or reference common to the heart throughout this letter. He's done that often. He's presented it both as a source of rebellion and perseverance. Right? So he warned that our hearts not be, uh, not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in chapter 3. He also said in chapter 3 that we, we must take care lest there be in us, what, in any evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. Furthermore, he said we are to, we are, we are to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And he describes what a true heart is, is, a heart sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus, he says. So this call, for, a, for, this call for, our, for our hearts to be strengthened or confirmed by grace, it makes sense. But where is this grace to be found that confirms us or that strengthens us? And he tells us, not from food, the author says. Food here is in reference to the sacrificial system of old and its inability to cleanse the heart from sin and sustain our obedience in the faith. So these, though essential in their time, were always temporary in nature. We've dealt with this throughout the book. They were instituted by God to expose our need or the need for something greater, which has come in Jesus. So any teaching, he's saying, that encourages one to return to the old sacrificial system is indeed strange. In fact, it's foreign. It's foreign to the old covenant itself, which was intended always to point to the new. It's doing something exactly opposite of what the old covenant was supposed to do. It's strange. It's foreign. The old system was never, was never meant to strengthen our hearts in that way. Only the gracious work of Christ and the gospel will do that. And our hearts are confirmed through our confession regarding the supremacy of the sufficiency of Jesus as our high priest and the mediator of the new covenant. This is the book of Hebrews. The grace of God in Christ is what confirms us and steadies us as the people of God on the path of perseverance. The food in the sacrificial system of the old covenant was inferior because it could not produce what it prescribed. The holiness and righteousness it demanded, it could not produce. Grace, necessary for salvation, necessary for true cleansing from sin, and true righteousness could not be found there. And never was it intended to be. The purpose of the old covenant was to expose our need for grace and then to point us to where grace can in fact be found. The grace of God in Jesus Christ alone is effectual for our lives. It produces what is necessary for salvation. It produces what's necessary for eternal life. It produces what is necessary for godliness. And it produces what's necessary for our perseverance. And in verse 10, the author furthers this point through the illustration of an altar. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's saying as new covenant believers, we have a far better altar. Now, clearly the author is not referring to a literal altar here. Nowhere is a literal heavenly altar mentioned anywhere in the book of Hebrews or anywhere in the Bible. The physical altar 
was meant as a foretaste, as a shadow of the better altar, the cross of Christ, and His once-for-all sacrificial death for sinners. And those who are still serving in the physical altar with its sacrifice, he says, has no right to partake from the altar of Christ. Like we hear the, the accusation often in our culture today of being like behind the times, right? It's like if you want to tear someone down today, just say they're behind the times on things. Well, we can talk about how foolish that is in most places in our culture, but it really does apply here in the text, right? This strange and diverse teaching is just that. It's behind the times concerning Christ. They cannot eat because they are behind the times. And again, this eating from the heavenly altar is not a literal eating. It's a receiving of, a partaking in the grace and the mercy offered to them in Christ. It's a rhetorical way of describing the grace believers enjoy through the sacrifice of Christ for sin. So why can't they partake? Or to be more specific, why do they have no right to partake of Jesus? Seems harsh, right? Well, it's logical though. It makes perfect sense. Because to partake of Jesus, to partake of the grace of God and the gospel of Christ is to come solely by means of grace. It is to come confessing our utter dependence upon Jesus. It is to come confessing His supremacy and His sufficiency as the full and final sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That is the Christian confession. And this false teaching resulting in these people, yes, maybe affirming Jesus in some way, but still participating in the old sacrificial system, was in fact a denial of the sufficiency of Jesus. They are saying Jesus is not enough. His blood is not sufficient to cover our sins. We still have to make animal sacrifices. His grace is not sufficient to make us right with God and lead us into His kingdom. We have to continue practicing and submitting ourselves to the old covenant. Grace is the description of the gospel we have, brothers and sisters. If you're not a Christian today, you're wondering what Christianity is. I tried to make the distinction at the beginning, but I'll make it here. It's a small, slight distinction, but it has seismic implications. Christianity is not about you coming next to other so-called Christians and practicing a religion. It is about receiving the grace of God offered to you in Jesus Christ, which requires you recognizing why you need that grace, that you're utterly dependent upon God do your sin. And we serve, we know a holy and righteous God. And we're sinners, fallen, desperate because of our sin before Him. And God would be right to leave us that way. And to send us into an eternity separated from Him because of our sin. He would be right and just to do that. But the message of the gospel, the heart of the Christian message is that God didn't do that. He acted out of grace towards us by sending His Son who would take upon the penalty that we were due for our sin and die upon the cross in our place as a substitute. And He would rise again, demonstrating that He has the power over sin and death. And then we are offered a free act of grace. We can receive forgiveness, eternal life, security, comfort in Christ. But we must confess our dependence 
We don't come with one hand on Jesus and one hand on something else. We don't come with one foot on grace and one foot on something else. That's no grace. We come utterly dependent upon Christ and we say, I need you because of my sin. And we cast ourselves upon Him. Simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hands can I bring. That's the Christian message. And then for us as Christians, nothing changes day to day. When you wake up, when you feel guilty, when you feel overcome with sin in the situations of your life, where are you supposed to look to, find, to have your heart confirmed? Where are you supposed to look to be strengthened? It's grace. We need grace daily for the assurance of our forgiveness, for the forgiveness of our sins based upon not us, based upon not anything we do, based upon the sacrifice of Christ that covers all our sins. We need the grace of God's promised help daily through Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. It's grace. It's of grace. Now, it's important we note how pressure from the Jewish community, as I said, was, was not that they outright reject Jesus. That wasn't the call. Acknowledging Jesus was, was fine. But elevating Jesus as supreme, elevating Jesus as sufficient, was the problem. So this false teaching was not a rejection of Jesus, it was a distortion of Jesus. And as J.I. Packer says, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a complete untruth. Scholars really debate about just how serious this false teaching was in the context of Hebrews, and they do that based upon the fact that it comes up like in the final chapter, like at the end, the concluding thoughts. So if it was that important, why didn't the author address it a long time ago? And while there may be truth to this, I, I think the fact of its placement offers us some help and some application. The challenge in our culture is typically not outright rejection of Jesus. It's, it's a distortion of Jesus, which is equally as dangerous. While you can find people who outright reject Jesus, the majority of the people in this city that I talk to will affirm Jesus in one way or the other. But the Jesus they affirm or assume is not anything close to the Jesus of the Bible. And our call and our context is similar to the one here. It's not that the author didn't address this issue until chapter 13. He's been addressing this issue the whole book. Clarity concerning the person and work of Jesus is his call. It's the people's call. And it's our call. Right? The best way to confront error is by presenting truth. Which he's been doing. From the, opening, from the opening time he set his pen, or he opened up his lips in his sermon, it was about Jesus, the person and work of Jesus. And he's been masterfully weaving the person and work of Jesus, yes, in light of their cultural situation, to make clear, here's who Jesus is. Here's the truth of who Jesus is. So clarity concerning the gospel of grace is to be our aim. So you want to talk about Jesus to people in our culture? Talk about grace. Talk about their need for grace because of their sin. Speak the truth of who Jesus is. And we should do that both in the way we speak and how we live as God's people. So our calling to Christ requires clarity in that way. But there's, thirdly here, we're supposed to identify with Christ as well. So we see how this contrast between the altars is, is really a contrast between 
what happens on the altar, the sacrifice. And this is set up by a similarity first before we deal with the contrast. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is bought, who is brought into the holy places by the high priest as, as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement is probably what the author has in mind here. Um, where the blood of animals were brought into the most holy place to secure the forgiveness of sins by the administration of the high priest. And the practice of burning these bodies or the, the remainder of these animals' bodies outside the camp for sin offering was very common. They were unclean. Verse 12 spells out the similarity. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. So just as the animals of the old covenant were burned outside the camp, Jesus suffered outside the camp, outside the city gate of Jerusalem. As was normal, Jesus was crucified, as was all crucifixions, outside the city gates of Jerusalem. He was crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull. So Jesus likewise suffered outside the city gates. However, his suffering was very different. How? His suffering was effectual. His blood sanctified. It cleansed his people from sin. What the earthly altar lacked, the heavenly altar, the cross of Christ, completed. And because of this, the author calls his readers to respond in verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's our word endure, persevered again, right? So given the context of suffering and persecution in this letter, the author is reminding these people not to try and find their identity in the cultural comfort and false security offered to them in Judaism, or the first altar, which was very welcomed in this society. You were welcome to, to say you were a Jew. You were welcome to be religious. You just had to leave that Jesus part out. Instead, they are to find their identity in Christ, who is the one who suffered outside the city gate. So our perseverance is found in following Jesus, who was rejected and despised. He was crucified outside the city because he was considered unclean. He was excluded from the place where God was, was said to dwell with his people, Jerusalem. But true security is not to be found in the earthly Jerusalem. It's not to be found in the earthly altar. With its sacrifices. Our security is found in Christ. We are to bear the reproach of Christ. To stand outside as followers of him. Recognizing that we too may be despised. And considered unclean. By the culture. He's really telling us to follow Moses, right? We're to stand with Moses. Well, Hebrews tells us that Moses rejected the security and the comfort of Egypt. By bearing the reproach of Christ. We're to stand with our Savior. Who was despised and suffered. We're to stand with Jesus who was made unclean that we might be clean. He suffered outside the earthly city. That we might be brought into the heavenly one. Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. The author is telling this suffering church and each of us do not seek the comfort of this present city for it will not endure. We like comfort. 
We like security. I like security. I like comfort. There's always going to be a danger to seek the comfort and the security of this world over Jesus. The same thrust, different situation, the same thrust of the application that fell on them falls on us. This city will not endure. We cannot put our hope, put our trust, look for comfort and security in this one. Identifying with the company of the faithful, those who dwell in the city that is to come, is to identify with Jesus, our suffering Savior. Lastly, we're to offer true praise. So as I said, the, the, the language of food and altar and tent and everything associated with the old covenant sacrificial system was for the purpose of worshiping God. The author's aim in Hebrews has been explaining why all this has now become obsolete. Why it's all over. That's not the way you worship God anymore. He's saying it served its purpose in redemptive history of paving the way to the new. Now, we can just imagine what these believers were hearing. The response that they were getting from their Jewish opponents. Without this sacrificial system. They're not going to the temple. They're not participating in the altar. They're not sharing in the food. They're not going to the tent. Then what? You guys aren't worshiping God. You don't even have a priest. You don't even have a temple. You don't have sacrifices. How are you even worshiping God? How do you think that the way you're living is pleasing to God at all? But sacrifice for the purpose of worship though it has ceased in the way it was done in the Old Testament, has not ceased in the New. Our worship is to be characterized by sacrifice as well. That's what the author says in verses 15 to 16. But the, this, it's not the sacrifice of animals. It's the sacrifice of our lips and of our lives. The praise of God through the name of Jesus. He says, through him. Who? The one who suffered outside the camp. That's who. Through him. Let us. There's his refrain over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Through him, let us. What a beautiful description of the Christian life. Of the Christian community. Over and over again. Through him, Jesus, let us. Through him, let us. Through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledges His name. There's no need to offer sacrifices for atonement. That sacrifice has been completed. Our sacrifice today is our continual praise to God through the person and work of Jesus. We praise through Jesus Christ for His finished work of His eternal cleansing of His people. And in the same way, burnt offerings were made daily under the Old Covenant. We are to offer our sacrifices daily. I had had a sweet older saint that I used to work with for years who always spoke of, she was a country lady, my Jesus. Always. 
When she talked to anybody about Jesus, she talked about my Jesus. My Jesus died for me. My Jesus loves me. My Jesus cares for me. I think that's the author's point here. We should never cease praising our Jesus. This daily sacrifice means we acknowledge His name. The very thing that brings reproach. That's what he's saying to them. The author is saying, keep speaking Jesus. Keep speaking of His supremacy and His sufficiency. He's saying, keep speaking of His full and final atonement for sin. Explaining why you don't go to the temple. Why you don't take part in those sacrifices. Because we have a far better sacrifice. We don't need that altar. We have an eternal altar. Keep declaring the beauty and glory of Jesus. That is the new covenant sacrifice. And that requires more than just an announcement with our lips, though. It requires a transformed life. He says, doing good and sharing what we have, the author says. Do not neglect, he says, to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sharing what we have is almost certainly a reference to us sharing our material belongings with others. Philippians 4.18, the financial gift of the church given to Paul, Paul's ministry is described there as a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice to God. And this, our, our doing good and sharing what we have is said to be what? It's pleasing to God. Participation in the food, the altar and the tent will not produce a life pleasing to God. But believing in the person and work of Jesus, trusting in His grace found in the gospel, and then living in simple gospel community will. Now, I, I find it really interesting and probably very significant that the final description of the Christian life in this most theologically rich letter is the simple, straightforward description before us. That's pretty fascinating. This letter opened on the Mount Everest of theological truth, describing Jesus as the Son who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power, and the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty of God after He made eternal purifications for sin. That's how it began. And it ends with this call for the new community, which that truth, that grand truth brought about. To what? Do good. Share with each other. That's what's pleasing to God. I want us to leave reflecting upon and maybe talking a bit more over lunch about how the Christian life is a significantly simple life. It's simple. In light of who Jesus is and what He has accomplished, we're to live in covenant faithfulness to Him in the context of His people, the church. We're to endure in love. We're to show hospitality. We're to care for the forgotten. We're to honor marriage. We're to remain content. Remember our leaders. Guard the gospel of grace. Identify with Jesus. Continually offer up praise to Jesus. Don't neglect to do good and to share with others. Next week, submit to your leaders. Pray. That's the call. A life of 
Simple faithfulness to our God amongst God's people. And yes, of course, not everything's listed here, what we're supposed to do. But it's a beautiful outline of the simplicity of the Christian life. But we should never misplace the simplicity of the Christian life as lacking significance. We serve the King of glory. We serve the Son who is due all power, all authority, and all glory for His name's sake. And we are part of the people who have been ransomed from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. The Bible says we are a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that we might declare the excellencies of our King, the risen Jesus, to all people among all the nations of the earth. If you struggle with seeing your life as significant, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're a believer, your life can't be any more significant. We never stop praising our King. Knowing that as we speak of Jesus, let me say that, as we speak of our Jesus, as we preach about our Jesus, as we sing of our Jesus, that the fruit of our lips is united with the voice of myriads of those who have gone before us and millions of believers and sisters from all over the globe today who are also offering sacrifices of praise to Jesus in Mandarin, in Hindi, in Spanish, in Arabic, in Bengali, in Russian, in Portuguese, in Indonesian. The call of the Christian life is simple, yes, but it's also significant. Because our Jesus is supreme. There's none like Jesus. And if we know Him, we are in Him. Church, in light of who Jesus is, and all of what He has accomplished, we're to embrace the simple life that He calls us to. So that the significance of who He is will be forever made known until we put our feet into the place they are destined for, the heavenly city that awaits us. As God's people, we remember the persevering faith of our leaders. We guard their faith by identifying with our Savior, the suffering one who suffered outside the city gates, and by continually offering Praise to God through the name of Christ, His Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God, if that's not a convicting truth we need to hear, I don't know what is. And I even, as I'm praying, I, we just give a second 
and let people just think about the unchanging, the, the, the forever changing things in their life. Maybe it's employment, maybe it's family, maybe it's just the unchanging nature of your own heart. God, let us feel that. God, let us hear the truth that in light of all of that, it says absolutely nothing about your son. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. And if we want to fix our feet somewhere that we can have security and stability, we fix them on Jesus. So God, if there's someone here today who does not know you, might they see their need for you? How could you rest in something that's forever changing? Pray they would see the unshakable Jesus today. Confess their sin to Him. Cry out to Him for forgiveness. And they might fix their feet upon the rock. God, settle our our hearts as Christians. Make us steady as believers. Help us to live in light of Christ and His unshakable kingdom. God, help us to embrace the simple call of life, the beautiful people that we get to do it with. But God, let us never forget the significance of what we've been brought into. A people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And God, we get to, simple people that we are here in La Mesa, we get to be a part of proclaiming the glory of your great name to the ends of the earth. God, remind us of that truth. Remind us when we see people out in our city that we have the hope of of eternal life. Help us to never stop speaking of our Jesus. And even as we sing now to close out our service, let the fruit of our lips be the praise of His great name. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.